<coughs> Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 24 this morning. So Colossians 1, 24. We're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Colossians 1, 24. We're, uh, we're pretty young when we realize that this world uh, isn't all that it might appear to be at first. Uh, there are these moments in our lives when we're really young where the innocence slowly begins to get stripped away over time. And it might be the first time you get hurt, or it might be sometime you got picked on. For me, it was my first encounter with death. What do you mean goldfish don't swim on their backs? <laughs> Look at him right there. He's swimming on his back. Kind of floating, but still... As we get older, we become more fully aware of all that the world has to offer, and most of it ain't pretty. It's a veritable certainty that in life, we are going to go through plenty of suffering. We're going to lose loved ones. We're going to have promises broken to us. We're going to break promises to others. We're going to be hurt by people. We're going to hurt other people. And in some cases, we may even face physical persecution like so many people around the world are facing this very day. But what is our suffering for? Surely there must be a reason for it. In fact, we are told in Scripture, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. He says all things right there in that passage. And so that must certainly include suffering. And if you look in the context that that occurs in, in Romans 8, it seems exactly what Paul is talking about is suffering. So we know that God has a purpose in suffering. But what is it? Now we're certainly not going to deal with every reason for suffering this morning. But I want to look at one very big reason for suffering that often goes unnoticed. This morning we're going to look at Christ-centered suffering in the ministry of Paul. In our passage this morning, Paul's going to, he's going to start talking about himself. It's going to be a, a self-reflexive uh, reflective time where he talks about his own ministry, his own sufferings that he's going through and giving the reasons as to why they occur but I want us to focus in on Paul's understanding of these sufferings and how they function in the broader church community. What's the purpose of his suffering? Let's read our passage, Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, before we dive into the text this morning, let's just, as a way of reminder, remember that Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter to the Colossians. So his sufferings that he's talking about in this passage are very real. He is physically being persecuted for his faith, for preaching the gospel. We think he's in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to Colossae. Now, though he is suffering physically for his faith at this very moment, the term he uses for sufferings is a lot more broad than just that. I don't think this just applies to physical persecution for faith. The term he uses could be as general as misfortune. I think it's probably a little more serious than just misfortune. But at the same time, I don't think it's specifically persecution that he has in mind. I think it's the suffering that we go through as Christians. So we don't need to only think about this as physical persecution. But what I want to do is as we move through this passage, I want to observe just, just a few things that Paul says about suffering. First of all, Christ-centered suffering focuses on making Christ known. That is what Christ-centered suffering is. It focuses on making Christ known. Now, right out of the gate in this passage, if you look at it, right there is a statement there in verse 24 that's going to make most of us feel a little strange in this room. If you look at it, Paul says there that he is, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, most of us are going to look at that and, and say, wait a second. There is nothing lacking about Christ's afflictions. So what could Paul possibly mean? What do you mean, Paul, you're filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction? I think there's two reasons why we think this is strange when we read it. First, because the word lacking has a really negative connotation most of the time that we use it. If you think about it, you say, how is, is Murphy's job performance? Well, it's lacking, right? If you took your meal that your spouse had given to you and you put, started putting salt on it and you said to, said to them, I am filling up what is lacking in your food. Uh, <laughs> you, you might be cooking frozen pizzas for a while. <laughs> uh, they, would be, they would be insulted, 
right? So we, we, t- we tend to look at that word lacking as, as an insult. And the second reason I th- we think this is a strange statement is because when we hear the term Christ's afflictions, we immediately think of the atonement that Christ made for his church on the cross. And the language reminds us of Isaiah's prophecy when, about, about Jesus when he says, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted there in Isaiah 53. So if what Paul is talking about here is that somehow Christ's offering to God on our behalf is insufficient, then we're, we're all in trouble. I mean, if you think about that for just a second, we're all in trouble. At, that's why sometimes in Bible study, I think it's really important to start with what it doesn't mean. If we can start with what it doesn't mean, we can get to what it does mean most of the time. Now imagine what we would be saying if we were saying or if we believed that something was lacking in Christ's atonement. And we believe that on the cross, God emptied the wrath that he had for his children on Christ. That he placed all of that on Jesus. So that Jesus could on the cross say, it is finished and actually mean it is finished. Meaning that God the Father has no more wrath to give for his children. He emptied it on Jesus. Well, if Paul here means that Jesus' atonement was somehow lacking and that Paul is supplying something more that Jesus lacks, then Jesus lied when he was on the cross when he said it is finished. It calls into question everything about us. I mean, if Paul is now filling up what is lacking, did Paul finish? Can we actually say it is finished because maybe something Paul did? It calls into question where we're going to stand on Judgment Day in front of God the Father. What's going to happen? Because apparently it isn't finished. I mean, so many things would be up in the air if Paul were saying Jesus' atonement is lacking. This is clearly not what Paul means. Look at just a few verses back in verse 21, he says, and you, who, uh, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So Paul's already said that we, are, that we who are in Christ are reconciled. That's past tense. That he has reconciled you in order to present you blameless and above reproach. So we absolutely know that Paul isn't saying that Jesus' atonement in just two verses later is somehow lacking if he already reconciled you. So so let me just state it plainly with what we talked about last week. If you are a persevering follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus has made atonement for you in front of God the Father. And there is now nothing that is lacking in his sacrifice. So in other words, you don't need Jesus and something else to satisfy the wrath of God. That is plainly taught in Scripture. Now that is rejected by some faiths. What if, if that's not what Paul is saying, and what is Paul saying? What does he mean here that he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, in fairness to us, as we attempt to understand this, this has been widely debated for centuries. 
all right? So I think there's a lot of really good options out there. People are not short of opinions on this verse, to be sure. But I think there are some, some good options for us in, in terms of understanding what Paul is saying here. First of all, when Paul uses the word affliction, he is not, obviously not talking about Christ's atonement. He would say atonement if he was take, talking about his atonement. He's quite literally talking about Christ's physical beatings on the cross that he suffered at the hands of men. The world hated the Messiah. They not only sought to kill him, they sought to insult him, to beat him, to maim him, and to torture him, and otherwise ridicule him in front of the watching world. And if he hadn't have given up the ghost, they would still to this day be beating and maiming him. So Paul says the physical beatings of Christ... Are still have some yet to come. What, what does he mean then, lacking? Like we said, it's not a bad word. It's not a negative word. It, it, it's not as if J- Jesus' job performance is somehow lacking. It would be like you sitting down next to me and saying, how much does he have to go until he finishes the race? And if I replied to you, well, he lacks about three miles. That's not me commenting on his performance in the race. That's simply saying what is left to happen. And what Paul is saying here is that as a member of his body, he is continuing on in the beatings that, uh, that were given to Christ on the cross. He is continuing to fill them up. Now, what is going to complete these sufferings that Christ has on uh, what is, what is what's going to be the completion here that Paul has in mind? How, how is he going to fill them up? In other words, what is the purpose that he's getting at? Well, mainly that the rest of the people of earth would come to a knowledge of Christ. Christ's afflictions still remain unknown in the world around Paul. So Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings because by his own affliction, he now has the opportunity to testify to the afflictions of Christ in the world around him. That is what is lacking. There are still more beatings left to come for Christ's body, the church. And he is filling them up. The problem is not the sufficiency of Christ's afflictions. The problem is the secrecy of Christ's afflictions. He is making it known. It's not that the afflictions lack power. They lack presentation. As one author puts it, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of His people. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. Since Christ is no longer on the earth, He wants His body, the church, to reveal His suffering in its suffering. We are carrying Christ's suffering to the nations in our bodies. But, 
I want you to look at the bigger picture of what Paul is saying about his suffering. How does Paul understand what is being accomplished in his sufferings? First, at the beginning of verse 24, he rejoices over his sufferings. And then at the end of 24, all the way through 27, he starts turning to the groups of people that are benefiting by his suffering. He says... That he's filling up affliction, he says at the end of 24, for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister, and according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Remember, Paul's appointed uh, as, as a missionary to the Gentiles. He's a steward of that ministry, he says. But his calling is to make the word of God fully known. And he understands that his suffering serves Christ's work in making Christ known. That that's the purpose of his suffering. It's for other people around him. Christ is making himself known to the Gentiles through Paul's affliction. So Paul's suffering is making the word of God fully known. But what does he mean when he says word of God? Does he mean the Bible? That's what we typically mean when we say the word of God. What does he mean when he says word of God? Well, he calls it there in verse 26. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. But then he says in verse 27, he defines it more specifically. And he says, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, essentially, the Word of God is the mystery hidden before the ages. The mystery hidden before the ages is Jesus Christ in you. The second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, taking up residence inside His people. So, the Word of God becoming fully known is that God is making His dwelling in amongst His people. And Paul's suffering demonstrates that. So Paul's suffering makes Christ known to the rest of the world. Because the way he suffers demonstrates that his strength to endure is supernatural. The people of the world watch him. The people of the church watch him. And they see that he continues to walk in grace and truth and continues to testify to the magnificence of Christ. And how is Paul able to do that? It's not because he's so good. It's because Christ is at work within him. He says that this is the hope of glory. Here again, we find Paul Shifting the hope of the church. We've talked about this week after week after week. He's shifting the hope of the church from specifically the kind of hope that would rest only in this world to a heavenly hope. A hope where Christ perfectly indwells us. Where we have no mixture of righteousness and sin. Where it's only righteousness. He is challenging the church to shift their hope this way to where Christ is perfectly indwelt in them. Now, we have this kind of phrase over and over in Scripture. We have this like Christ in us, the Spirit of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us. 
the Spirit of God in us. We have all of these kinds of phrases sprinkled throughout Scripture, and it's really all testifying to the same thing. But what does Paul mean? What's the importance, what's the significance of having Christ in us? Because he obviously presents it here as a big deal. It's it's an amazing deal, but I think it's somewhat lost its meaning on us. We don't really get its significance. Listen to Romans 8.11, because I think it captures exactly what Paul is thinking about here when he says this. Romans 8.11, he says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So having Christ dwelling in us means that he will raise us from the dead as he did Christ. So you see what what Paul's doing here. Paul, in his suffering, is pointing to Christ by resting in the hope of glory. He doesn't put his hopes and his dreams in this world. What can his torturers possibly take away from him? In other words, our suffering reveals where we place our hope. Amen. So you see what Paul is saying? His suffering is useful for the body of Christ. He is using his suffering for the rest of the body. When was the last time we considered that our suffering was for those around us? Most of the time, it's primarily about us. What is God teaching me in this? What is he doing for me in this? How is he going to rescue me from this? When was the last time we thought that our suffering was for other people? Let me tell you, there are at least two ways that are common amongst every single person in this room, myself included, where we take our suffering and guarantee that it is going to be about us and only us. First, we tell no one that we're suffering. Button it up, don't tell anyone, keep it quiet. Now, that's contrary thinking to what people in the world think. They think, well, no, uh, you, you should keep it to yourself. Suffering is meant to be, you know, kind of kept to yourself. You pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You do it yourself. You're American-made kind of, kind of person. This is not what Paul does here. He actually tells people what he's going through. He makes known the kind of suffering that he's going through. But he doesn't just tell them that he's suffering. He points to the hope that he has in the midst of suffering. Something you can never do if you don't tell anyone you're suffering. When you tell no one that you're suffering, they have no opportunity to see where your hope lies. It stays hidden within you. Perhaps it's out of pride or maybe it is just that kind of buck up and pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. Whatever it is. It's not for the edification of the body around you. Christian, you exist in a body of believers. The struggle that you go through is meant to be shared. Not only for your benefit, 
but for the benefit of those around you. It's not about you. But when we refuse to tell people about our suffering, we make it about us, ironically. So the first thing you can do is tell no one about it. The second thing you can do is tell everyone about it. All right. Now, I've had many conversations with, with you over the, last, over the last month, and I want to give a precursor to this point and to say that I'm not talking about any one of you. All right. I have not had a conversation for which that has become an illustration in this service. All right. So just rest easy. Uh, if you've told me about any problems, I'm not, I'm not using this opportunity to attack you at all. Um, but telling everyone about your suffering. You know the kind of person that I'm talking about. The, one, the ones that go around telling everyone about everything that's happened to them. Every time something comes up, they've always got a prayer request. Oh man, yeah, you, paper cut. Woo, that's awful. <laughs> man, that's tough. We'll, we'll, we'll be in prayer. Fasting, yeah, we'll fast for it, for sure. For sure, we're hopeful that, that paper cut will heal. Oh, hangnail. Ooh, ah, ouch. And it's not that people don't care about you. It's that your definition of suffering is entirely too broad. And no matter, no matter how many times you say, well, I just trust that God has a plan. It's just giving platitudes and lip service to God. No one thinks that you're actually throwing yourself at God's mercy because you had to wait in line at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. <laughs> Everybody has to wait in line at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. That's natural. That's a consequence of addictive chicken, I guess, or something. But it's not suffering. Your definition is entirely too broad, and all you've become is just a bellyacher. That's all it is. It's just a complainer about all kinds of things, and you want sympathy. It's all about you. But there is a middle ground where you have the opportunity to testify to the goodness of God in the midst of suffering and the hope of heaven that you have when this life is over in the midst of real and genuine suffering. When you're on your knees begging God for comfort and when you're face to face with your own mortality or maybe even someone else's mortality, when cancer is devouring your organs or when it seems like you're facing one catastrophe after another and yet you can still testify to the truth that though he slay me, I will hope in him. The world does not understand that. It cannot understand that without Christ. You have the opportunity to do that in those situations. Christ-centered suffering focuses on making Christ known. Second, Christ-centered suffering is for the maturity of the church. Christ-centered suffering is for the maturity of the church. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if you look at this passage, right there in the middle in verses 29 and verse 1, Paul tells us what he is doing. He uses the words toil, he uses the word toil once, and then twice he uses the word struggle um, there in just those two verses. And, and it's not Paul's energy. He says, it's not my energy that, that, that I'm doing this with. It's, it's his energy that he powerfully works within me. And he's already explained that Christ is in him and powerfully working through him to endure this kind of persecution and temptation. And he tells us why he agonizes and how he agonizes over the church in the previous verse. If you look in verse 28, he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, we looked at this a little bit last week, but, but Paul sees this as the goal of his ministry, to present everyone mature before Christ on the day of judgment. And how does he go about doing this? Well, he says, that proclaiming Christ, warning everyone, we would presume about the coming judgment, teaching everyone with all wisdom, so, so the ministry that Paul is doing, he does so tirelessly because Christ is at work in him. But then look at the very end, starting in verse 2. How will he know when this is accomplished? He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So in this little section of text, we have what Paul does. He suffers for the church. Why he does it to present them mature in Christ. And what that looks like when it's finished. The body is knit together in love. I, I do want to be sure that we understand Paul's words in his context. He's, he's a teacher of the church. He knows that he's a teacher of the church. And as a teacher, he is going to be judged by this aspect of his ministry, struggling to present everyone mature in Christ through his teaching. This is one reason why James, I think, says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, James goes on to talk about the taming of the tongue and the, the hardship of trying to tame the tongue, but, but Paul is pointing to a different aspect of teaching and why there's strict judgment here. It's, it's difficult. To present everyone mature in Christ. It's a struggle that he's constantly going through. Amen. That maturity looks like the body being knit together in love. As I said at the end of the last week, that's the goal of every pastor. Now, that's not the goal of every pastor. That should be the goal of every pastor. That is the goal of every pastor, whether they know it or not. But to be sure, all of us, who have been entrusted with this mystery that Christ is in us. We have the responsibility to strive toward this end, toward the unity of the body being knit together in love. And Paul is willing for his whole life to be on display, for people to look at him and see him suffer and watch him in agony, toil, not for his own acclaim, but so that he might be, might be encouraged when they see him. That they might be encouraged. That they might grow in maturity in Christ. And he knows that his suffering, that his own toil, that his own agony will serve to produce that. So it seems that suffering 
has a way of producing unity like nothing else. Anyone can claim to follow Christ when everything is good. It's a much different proclamation when it becomes difficult, when suffering increases. Now, I don't want any of you to die. But, some of you, it is going to be a real joy to do your funeral. Not because you're dead, but because of how you lived. See, when people go to a funeral, they aren't forced to look at the face of Christ. Thousands of people die every single day. And in many funerals across this world, the name of Christ is not named, is not proclaimed. They're not required to come face to face with Christ. But at your funeral, they are required to come face to face with you. They cannot avoid the casket at the front. And when they come face to face with you, they come face to face with Christ whom you represented. If your life sought the glory of the resurrected Christ, then it's not your face they will see at the funeral, but His. But they won't see Him in a casket. They'll see Him high and lifted up. They will see Him proclaimed. Because Christians, at the end of it all, are the only ones who can truthfully say, this is not the end. This is but the beginning. Brothers and sisters that gather around your casket grow stronger through the examination of your life. Because they see that your heart was that everyone would look like Christ in the midst of their struggles. And that they would look to Christ in the midst of their struggles. That everyone would see that your hope was not in this life, but in the life to come. How many of us have considered that our suffering in this life is used for the maturation of the body of Christ around us. It's not often how it's presented. In fact, it's antithetical to the world's presentation of suffering. It's all me-centered. It strengthens me. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. That's not the Christian view of suffering. To the Christian, all suffering is for the strengthening of the body, even what kills me. And ironically, what kills me makes me the strongest. Christ-centered suffering is for the maturity of the church. But last, Christ-centered suffering is for the firmness of faith. So Paul closes out what amounts to be a really long introduction from the very first verse of Colossians to, to 2.5 there. And he, he, look at what he says in verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, I say this. And the this I think he's talking about is all the way back in 424. And that's important. And here's the reason why. Because anytime Paul becomes introspective, he starts talking about his own ministry. He doesn't really do that a whole lot. 
first of all. And when he does do that, it's always with caveats. He always wants to explain the reason why he's talking about himself, the why he's focusing on some aspect of himself. And so he gives the reason why now he's looking so intently at his own life. He's saying that the reason that I have become so introspective, the reason why I'm talking about my own ministry and my own suffering is so that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. And he sees, even from a distance, that the Colossian church is growing in their firmness in Christ. He says that at the end of verse 5. But suffering, it seems, has a way of revealing our true selves, who we really are. And so Paul is saying here, I wouldn't suffer for a lie. Everyone knows that he has seen the resurrected Christ or that he's saying he has seen the resurrected Christ. And he seems to be coming back here and saying, the reason that I'm pointing out my suffering and the reason that I'm saying all of these things is for your firmness so that no one would delude you and take you away because I would not suffer for a lie. I have seen the resurrected Christ. I know what he is. I know what kind of hope is waiting for me. Suffering reveals our true selves. And this is Paul's true self. It reveals our true self. If you don't believe me, try going without food for a little while. Try just a little bit of fasting. Any couple that's ever gone on a diet together knows exactly what I'm talking about because by lunchtime on day one, you're at each other's throats. One of you is spiking the vinegar dressing with sugar. Just need a sugar or something, Snickers or something, you know, tide you over. Suffering reveals how committed we are to the cause. Paul's willing for his own suffering to be examined so that he can assure the Colossian church and anyone else looking on, I didn't run from this confession when things got hard. I stayed steadfast. I didn't turn anywhere else when times got hard, when suffering increased. I really do believe this, and it's for your firmness in faith that I give it to you. I can't tell you what an encouragement Paul's life has been even to me 2,000 years removed from his suffering. Especially in seasons of doubt. What we have in Christianity is something that no other religion can even begin to claim. First of all, we have a Messiah who suffered in the presence of his people. Suffered with his people. He took on the full force of God's wrath on the cross in our place. Also in the presence of people. And he physically died. Witnessed by people. He was placed in a tomb and three days later he rose from the dead and appeared in his resurrected body before as many as 500 people including the Apostle Paul. That's different than many other religions where the leader goes away by himself and gets some vision and then comes presents it to people who become followers and who live out the visions that he saw. Now, that's not what we have in Christianity. We have disciples who witnessed Jesus resurrected. 
We have disciples who witnessed his life and miracles. We have people who saw him die on a cross and put in a tomb. And they gladly suffered because they knew what was to come. It's for your assurance. For those suffering in this room that should provide a tremendous amount of comfort. To know that glory is to come. It is a sure thing. But for those without Christ, I beg you to reconsider. There is nothing better than following Christ. And nothing more worth it in the long run than pursuing Christ. Place your faith in him. Repent of your sins. The Bible says he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins. Paul's hope for the Colossian church, we could even put our own name in there, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Paul's hope for us was that by looking at the sufferings of the saints that came before us, it would fuel our firmness in faith. Would these men die for what they knew to be a lie? But it's not just Paul. The suffering that you go through can and should be used to establish your brothers and sisters in faith. As they see you turn to Christ in the midst of your suffering, it's continual preaching to them. It's convincing them over and over and over again as you turn to Christ that indeed the confession we believe is real. It's continual preaching and it convinces them of the gospel and it prepares them for their own day of suffering. But do you see what's required of us? Once again, we come back to it. Taking our minds from the hope of this world and moving it to the hope of heaven. It requires us to make known not just our suffering, but our hope. But it requires us to be convinced of it as well. Let me say something to us in the way of preparing us for our time together. I'm hopeful that we're going to be get together for a long time. And if the Lord answers that prayer, then we're all going to go through some suffering together. Every last one of us. And you start to realize after a while, the more people that gather together on a Sunday morning, I, I realized this at, at our, our last church, you get enough people together, spread across all generations, and every week you have funerals, almost. And what you start to realize after a while is that as a group, as a body of Christ, we're really preparing for death. I know that sounds like a morbid thought, but in reality, what we're preparing for is to set our hope to heaven so that we may be prepared to walk through this life and in the end die well, maintaining our confession of faith all the way to the end. This is how perseverance happens. So as we think about that, our time together, let's continue to remind each other of the hope of glory. Let's continue to strive toward unity in the bonds of love. 
Something that can only be had inside the body of Christ. Let's throw out anything that would tear us apart. For those of you that are currently in the throes of suffering, I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce. He said, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss could possibly make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. As we suffer well as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is never a comforting thing to think about our own suffering. But we are grateful that we have a pattern set before us in Paul that you have given to us to prepare us for that day. Convince us of the truth of this scripture. Lord, prepare us. Prepare our hearts for the day where we will face that kind of suffering. Whether it be at the sword or at the hands of cancer, we know all of it lies within your sovereignty. Pray, Lord, that you would give us the faith to endure, but give us the body around us to endure as well. Lord, be with us as we continue to grow together. I pray that you unite us in faith and that the bonds we have in that faith be stronger than anything else that would attempt to divide us. In Jesus' name, amen.